This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. And I'm Scott. And I'm Will. And we're going to talk about The King of Elfland's Daughter, a 1924 fantasy novel by Anglo-English writer Lord Dunsany. Uh, this is the first time I've read this book. I'd heard of it, of course, because it's kind of a famous fantasy novel. Um, it's probably my least favorite Lord Dunsany thing ever. And I've read a lot of Dunsany, but it's all been short stuff and poems. Hmm. I don't uh, think I've ever read anything by him. No. Yeah, I my can, first time too. Wow. Yeah, that I can recall, and I liked this book quite a bit. I, I this is my I've heard of Lord Dunsany since the seventies, but I've never actually touched Lord Dunsany till now. So thank you for that, Jesse. So what do you think? What did you think of this book? Um, if it, it wasn't quite what I expected, it was a lot more. I mean, I was kind of put off by the begin by the by the beginning. The preface, which I'm going to read for everybody. You know. mm-hmm. I hope that no suggestion of any strange land that may be conveyed by the title will scare readers away from this book. For though some chapters do in detail of Elfland, in the greater part of them there is no more to be shown than the face of the fields we know. There's that phrase. Mm-hmm. An ordinary English woods in a common village and valley a good 20 or 25 miles from the border of Elfland. Lord Dunsany. Which almost sounds like, it's like don't worry, it's not really fantasy. Don't yeah. worry, don't worry. Oh, it's that, it's, yeah, that's it exactly like what it sounds apologizing. like. It's apologizing. And... and, and and as it, as someone who's been reading science fiction and fantasy since the age of eight, I kind of that kind of put me off at the beginning. It's like, so you're not you don't really want to really want to own what you are. Mm-hmm. And well, joyfully, there's more fantasy in here than he says in that preface. But I think it's the- tongue in cheek. Uh, I think that it is tongue in cheek, and and yet um, the narrative voice that comes in throughout the novel. Uh, to, you know, say in our day or something like that, every once in a while, there's a sort of a reflection of towards the reader. Um, I think that that is, it's, it's because it's so early, Paul. <laughs> it, <laughs> who comes before him? As far as fantasy, that fantasy, qua fantasy besides fairy tale, Victorian fairy tales? Um, and the answer is virtually no one. There are there are stories that are you know ancient like the Vol- saga of the Volsungs, uh, but that's not a fantasy story. That's a saga. Right? <laughs> this is a fantasy novel before Tolkien, before Lewis, before uh, Robert E. Howard's Conan. Right? This is this is a fantasy story that is so early um, that it kind of is. Oh, George, George MacDonald too. So, so yeah, uh, George. But... There, there are ant- antecedents. There are definitely people who came before, but the thing is, is he, he kind of is doing some massively pioneering work here. And it, what it made me think of while reading it is, like, it's like urban fantasy of today, except uh, not urban. Right? It's that meeting between uh, the regular workaday world and. Uh, the fantastic world, and I think he he does a very good job with it, um, the, the, bringing the two yeah, together. The, yeah. The, have you uh, any read the or have the Encyclopedia of Fantasy? Uh-uh. I it's do a, 
it's, I it's, read it, it online. It, 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 I, I had I had a copy. I lost some between movies. It was a big volume of of ideas and concepts from fantasy. And they talked about things like polders and whatnot about lands that were on the borders of magical lands. And, and Earl is definitely in a polder and spoilers. How do you spell this word? Polder. P O L D E R. It's, 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 it's adapted from the Dutch where they, where they basically reclaim land from the sea by diking ah, gotcha. it. Okay. It's the same word. So, so definitely Earl is a polder. And by the end, it gets, absorbed completely into into uh fairy which is kind of the tragedy of this book is i don't know i i want to if you guys felt like that it felt like a tragic ending to me not a happy ending. well yeah i get i i don't know i i had mixed feelings kind of like you're expressing there but it was like an extension of elfland into the earl or a merging of the two worlds together mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's, and, it's uh, like so the you're losing you're losing them both by merging them into one. Um, but and that's why I Earl thought he, he wrote eloquently about Elfland and of Earl both. Mm-hmm. You know, they both had uh, a lot of poetry aimed their direction. Mm-hmm. I love the uh, f- that scene where the witch creates the sword and mm, and yeah. makes it, uh, imbues it with all the magic of the fields we know, mm-hmm. right? Um, and in the way that's written, uh, somebody should dig that out. Maybe me. Um, it, it, it's really funny because the magic that's imbued in it is as much magic as we have, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. AKA zero, right? Well, well, no, the, the, well there's the, 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 the great spells that the elf king has. So there's well, that. Yes, magic. but he doesn't, he doesn't put them on the sword, right? That's, no. that's the witch. So the witch puts, uh, in, creates this magic from our world. And imbues it into the sword, right? And mm-hmm. she says, as much magic, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the narrator says, as much magic as this has, and as much magic as that has, and it has all this magic, and it has all that magic. Well, if you're adding up a column of zeros, it still ends <laughs> up being zero, but yeah. he's having it both ways. And this is, this is the cleverness of Lord Dunsany. So, um, you guys, uh, Paul, you're lamenting the, the, the feeling of the end. Well, remember that that introduction, right? That preface. Um, mm-hmm. He says, "Don't worry. This is just you know. It's mostly about our world." And then what mm-hmm. happens? You get suckered in, and you get pulled into the world, and now you're gone. And this is a repeating motif or theme or whatever you want to call it that just occurs again and again and again in Dunsany stories. The, one of the very first ones I did on this podcast, if not the first one was called The Wonderful Window, and it's about a guy who lives in the workaday world like us. And he he buys a window at a market in London, and the window is from far off uh, Baghdad, right? So it's a magic window, and he takes it home, and he installs it in his wall, even though he doesn't have a exterior view. And it gives him a view to a new world that he become, falls in love, falls in love with and spends all his time thinking about instead of the terrible... Uh, bullshit job he has, you know, in the city. And, and that's, that's sort of the standard default story for Lord Dunsany. There, there are stories set within that world, but the way you get into the fantas- the fantastic realms is through our world, usually. Yeah. Or, or it's just so, set in there. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I have a paragraph about that sword that I'd love to read oh, sure, because please. it has, uh, real world and fantasy in it both. Um, so it says, 
Nobody can tell you about that sword, all there is to be told of it. For those that know of those paths of space on which its metals once floated, mm. till Earth caught them one by one as she sailed past on her orbit, have little time to waste on such things as magic, and so cannot tell you how the sword was made. And those who know whence poetry is, and the need that man has for song, or know any one of the fifty branches of magic, have little time to waste on such things as science, and so cannot tell you whence its ingredients came. Yeah, it, 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 that's the other thing is is it came from outside our world, right? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. stars. It's it, it's an asteroid metal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me- which, meteoric iron, which back in his, I mean, early uh, history was the first real use of iron by people was and it's was magical, stuff from that. It, it's way stronger than regular uh, bronze swords. Right. And of course, yeah, of course, there's the whole thing which doesn't use here is the whole idea that cold iron will uh, will fight off fairy, which so which you, ongoing which you theme. See, which ongoing thing. Yeah, he's <clears throat> sort of clarified and made made uh, concrete. Yeah. People well, what do you think here. of uh, at the very beginning of the book, um, them saying, you know, we want to be ruled by a magical lord. <laughs> At, uh, be like careful that. what you wish for. Yeah, be careful what you wish for. Because you're going to get it. Because yeah. in the end, they be, since they become part of Elfland under the under the Elf King, yeah, they they eventually get what they wish for, just not in the way they asked for it. I mean, right. once they realize how bad things are when the trolls come over and start messing around and saying like, "Hey, this is great," then they kind of realized, well. They, they, it's 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 like a, a monkey paws wish. It's like, yeah, you made the wish, and now it's gonna be twisted in the worst possible way. Yeah, yeah. So, um, this book uh, disappeared after its publication in 1924. Um, a lot of a lot of Dunsany sort of disappeared uh, for a long time after his death. Um, there is a movie that I think I've seen. I can't remember if I've seen it or not, and it's based on an on a late Dunsany book. Um, but most of his stuff has not been adapted to film. Um, I think, Scott, if you haven't seen it, you're going to really dig it. I'm trying mm. to remember who star. I think it's Sam Neill's the star. <laughs> I'm trying Sam to remember. Neil. Yeah, Sam Neill. And I'm trying to, I can't remember the title, but basically the premise is, um, a, uh, uh the guy, he, his a dog dies um and uh is reincarnated in his master kind of uh, uh, going from memory here but basically um he's like a he's a he's a priest <laughs> but he's also a beagle <laughs> a priest beagle <laughs> something like a that a beagle priest <laughs> so he he's like um Oh, Dean Spanley. That's the name of it. I, I was, I, I was, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll dig out the premise, but, uh, <laughs> a 2008 British comedy drama film with fantastic elements set in the in England. It's, it's a it's comedy on, and yeah. he's, 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 he's a very subtle comedian. Um, it's, uh, based on the novel, uh, my talks with Dean Spanley. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> so what it, what happens is, um, oh, cool. Let's check it out. He's, uh, he, uh, the main character, the narrator is a, um, of the book. I haven't read the book, but I, uh, it's my understanding of reading about it. Um, hypnotizes Dean Spanley and, uh, he's trying to, 
I'll just read I'll just read the storyline here. <laughs> in the very early 1900s, Henlos Fisk lives beholden to his father, the difficult Horatio Fisk. The Fisk family has suffered the first loss of their younger son, uh, killed in the Seco, Second Anglo-Boer War. Shortly followed by the death of Horatio's wife, Fisk Sr. is looked after by a housekeeper who has lost her husband. Fisk Jr. reluctantly visits his father every Thursday. Uh, so, one day, trying to entertain his father, Fisk Jr. takes him to a lecture by a visiting Swami <laughs> about the transmigration of souls. The lecture is also attended by the new local clergyman, Dean Spanley, a.k.a. Sam Neill. Later the same day, Fisk Jr. encounters Dean at the Father's Club. A chance third meeting leads to an introduction. Whoever wrote this overwrote it. Okay, I'm going to just skip down a bit. Working with his clever friend, uh, an Australian conveyancer, Fisk secures a batch of of something to enter. Oh yeah, it's a drink. He, he, he always convinces him to come because he's got a special drink, I think. Um, <laughs> and he acts ever more strangely, uh, revealing past memories of a previous life as a, oh, Welsh spaniel. There you go. Mm. <laughs> so it's like, um, you'll see like, uh, this, you know, very proper English gentleman, um, or Irish or whatever he is. Um, and then suddenly, I must have seen the movie. He, uh, he's talking about the joys of sniffing. <laughs> the know? joys of sniffing. <laughs> you know, just running through fields and, ch- oh yes, he, and he had, he, he, his previous, his previous master and how he thought of him. And it's almost like the reason that Dean Spanley is a, is a, uh, priest is because he had this idea of, of God within him already from his previous incarnation, uh, as a, as a dog. <laughs> so wow. he was such a good boy. He was, you know, sort of promoted on the chain of life. And now, um, uh, the reason he loves God so much is because he used to love his master so much. And it's, it's not like a takedown of religion. It's just a comedy that plays with this idea of, of, uh, you know, reincarnation and trying to fit it into like, what would that actually mean? <laughs> and so it, it, it was, it was one of my first expo- exposures to, um, Dunsany. And he's very, um, he's, this is not typical of his, his work, I would say. And that's why, like, it's my least favorite of his. It, the characters are kind of not, uh, what he's good at. What he's good at are his description of the landscape and, um, uh, poking, poking yeah. ideas and, and coming up. With, I mean, you can feel it in the, the, the solid writing here, but mm-hmm. the story seems sort of generic to me. Well, then uh, that's, that's pretty much what he's doing here, what you described mm-hmm. him being good at. This is mm-hmm. really what this is. I mean, there's no serious depth of character or anything like right. that. It's sort of that mythic quality yeah. Absolutely. Um, to it. You know, he's not trying to, to delve into the personal, you know, thoughts and feelings and things. I mean, it's, yeah, no, it's more like, that. you know, a, a myth, mm-hmm. uh, mythic kind of telling but when he when he normally does this so i i was saying before the podcast started that i uploaded a bunch of dunsany stories uh they're from something called the book of wonder which was started off as a magazine serial and it would be one page uh, a one page story you know it's a it's small font but it's one page and on the other side there's a sydney sime illustration just beautiful right Hmm. And then later on, a couple of years down the road, or maybe the next year, they publish that as a book, and then they just keep doing that. And 
what's so amazing is some of the stories work really well. Like, it's just like some, he's captured lightning in a bottle, and another one will be fine. But it's that capturing lightning in a bottle process that he, he's able to do sometimes. It just, it just, it works so well. And other times it's like, oh, I appreciate what you're doing here, but you didn't capture lightning this time. And, and so like the scenes, there are scenes in this book that are like that, right? Like, mm. um, I yeah. loved, I'll go for it. Well, oh, well, I'm just thinking, you know, reading this book, uh, you couldn't care less what happened to the characters most of the time, mm-hmm. right? Cause they're, I mean, they're little dolls. They're not actually characters. That's right. Uh, but, uh, the, the chapter where the, uh, the troll is experiencing <laughs> our world, the yeah. fields we know for the first time. Being chased by the dog. <laughs> like being chased by the dog and uh, just like watching time, like thinking about the pigeons, just describing all these different aspects of that just so beautifully. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that was for me, that was lightning in a bottle. The, the yes. chapter that was the troll uh, coming to our world. But, you know. There's so many chapters that are just like, oh, here's our clever joke, like making fun of like the Pope, uh, like having a unicorn horn. That's legit, though. I mean, it's funny. Yeah. I like that whole little bit. Although I have to wonder, how did the unicorn horn get to the Pope? Because, because okay, so Orion kills the unicorn. He brings the horn home, but we never told that he actually – it's never actually explained in chapter twenty that was sold or anything, and so if so, if Earl becomes part of Elfman, how did the horn ever get out of Earl to go? It go all to refers the, back to the pre- pre- preface, Paul. So it, that, it, but, and he he even says that's going to be a whole other novel. If I yeah, it, it could make that story, that's right. Which would, which would make a good, good novel. It kind of that kind of reminds me that whole beginning of chapter twenty kind of reminds me of Italio Calvino and Michael Chabon. As far as the style of that mm. little bit of the little historical fact, as he calls it, it's like, oh yeah, and if this is the horn, and this is not the only horn, and the hope ha- got to select is like, really? Why don't you write that book? I'd write, I'd read that one too. <laughs> I'll uh, tell you uh, another example of a just okay chapter. You know, you love the troll coming to our world, mm-hmm. but then mm-hmm. when the troll is like. You know, out whipping the dogs on the nose, and he's like, "I'm going to get all my friends to come here and whip the dogs." Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like, it's like bemusing. Mm-hmm. The, the troll trying to convince his fellows to, yeah, and then the old troll saying, "Oh, I've been there, and you get old, and it's not so great." But yeah, it's just like it's like a negotiation. It's almost like a parliament of trolls to use the the, the whole parliament structure that that starts this whole novel to, to get the trolls to come over and infuse the world with trollishness i haven't uh, i haven't read uh michael chabon that much so i i didn't see that but i did feel like um, i was thinking like gentlemen of the road particularly. Uh, i have read novel. that one um although i i didn't find it i th- uh, it's more much more historical i thought uh, it's fun it's a good book and i did enjoy it but it, it's it's like a it's a fantasy without the magic right it's a uh it's a road yeah. movie it, it, road it, it, it's definitely a road movie I, I, I quite enjoyed that book, actually. Um, mm-hmm. However, um, I was thinking a lot more of Clifford C. Mack. Um, Clifford yeah, C. Mack's that's, Goblin that's Market. Weird. Clifford C. Mack's... Um, the Goblin S- Reservation, which we did yeah, on the show. Oh, that's, uh, that's the one I meant. I yeah. said Goblin Market. That's Rossetti. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, and there, he had one uh, I really I want to reread. I really hope it comes to audio. It's called uh, Shakespeare's Planet, which is uh, one of the first science fiction novels that I read, which is really weird because... 
it's not really science fiction, right? It's it's set on a fantasy world uh, that's another planet, but, I mean, it's a fantasy world, right? So it's a secondary world, sort of, as far as I remember anyways. But I, I love the way i mean you even see it in his short stories uh, scott you know um over the over the woods no over the fields and through the woods mm-hmm. um, house we go <laughs> well it's a c-max story uh it's time travel in which kids are sent back in time to spend spend a summer with their grandparents because um there's like world war three or something that's happening in the present yeah yeah uh, and uh the grandparents are like huh who are they and it's like oh they're your grandkids but we're young. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And so it, it has that mystical magic door quality, you know, going to a secondary world without it, um, uh, breaking out into Tolkien world, right? Where it's uh, a, a portal fantasy, I guess, is the, the sort of way of putting it. Yeah. But, um, this is the portal is, uh, not so much a portal as a, a border. Well, the, yeah. that silver yeah. wall that comes in that reminds me so much of uh, PUBG when you see the blue wall coming, right? It's, yep. it's a wall of death, but in this case, it's a wall of magic. Um, that final um, rune that he uses, the King of Elfland, right? Um, uh, what what came to my mind reading this was a couple of things. One, it, it's more of the mythic quality of it, mm-hmm. that style. Mm-hmm. Um, is Elric of Mel- Melnibony, is that how you say that, that by Moorcock, right. mm-hmm. is sort of got that same mythic style. And then we read here on the podcast uh, The Broken Sword by yes, Paul by, Anderson. Yes, yes was, I was hoping you were going to mention that. It yes. was yeah. very Broken Swordy, although I, I didn't enjoy Broken Sword as much. Um, <laughs> yeah, I loved it. That was a <laughs> <laughs> it is such a good book, but it's got that same kind of a mythic thing yes, to it, where absolutely. it's a style of uh, of storytelling, and, and the whole idea the, the eventual slow diminishment of magic versus the real yeah. world. Yeah, right, right. So yeah. that uh, fields we know that comes up. Uh, I, I didn't do a word cloud, but it's got to come up every five lines or so. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Um, that is very, very much. Um, I mean, he's casting a spell. This is epic poetry style of technique, right? It, Scott, you remember we did um, the Odyssey, and it the was Odyssey, a yeah. rosy fingered dawn was one of those, you mm-hmm. know, touchstones that it's basically the guy's trying to remember the next part of the story. <laughs> he can't remember, mm-hmm. so you have these way stations. These oh, there's another C-Mac. Uh, and, uh, uh you know, you have these um, totems that you can you can bring yourself through to by doing that so he's i think very consciously doing something here and like i said you know dunsany is not known as a novelist that's he has written novels i've got i think uh, uh don rodriguez is up on the pdf page as well i haven't read that one but um as a short story writer it's amazing what he can some he can just sometimes capture uh what seems to be a very subtle and um, easy, breezy story, like this feels very easy, breezy. It sort of washes over you. And that, that, uh, those lines, uh, over the fields we know, or in the fields we know, anything fields we know is mm-hmm. like, it's like, um, you're laying on the beach and the, the, those are the wave, gentle waves coming in and washing over yeah. your feet. You know, it's not designed. 
he actually uses those terms too to describe oh, uh, uh, the elf land washing forward like a wave. Right, you're right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's. I think what he's doing here is designed to be exactly how it is. It may not be, you know. It's why I'm not as excited about it. Is because I think he he's just he's an he's incredibly subtle. And you may not notice it, and I didn't notice it here. And I think it was because it's either um, too deep for me, or he didn't put it in. <laughs> but for example, uh, just on Wednesday, uh, Scott, you're gonna have to edit this up. <laughs> Eric and I did a show on a story of his called "The Coronation of Mr. Thomas Shap," mm. um, and that was very, very, very similar to a Lovecraft story I did on Sunday. Uh, what was that one called? Paul? What? Sunday? Oh. We did a Lovecraft. It was called The Silver Key. That's right. Yeah, uh, The Silver Key. That... And the, the similarity is amazing. Like, um, I'm sorry, fact, I was muted. It's okay. So, uh, basically, <laughs> so basically, uh, what he's done, Lovecraft's done, is he said, Oh my God, this guy, uh, Lovecraft uh, says, this guy Dunsany, he's he's thought exactly what I thought. Coronation of Mr. Thomas Shap is very similar to the story I mentioned earlier, the wonderful window. It's about a guy from our world who has a terrible job and he doesn't like it and he unlike everybody else around him, he doesn't sort of distract himself from his job by reading the penny half penny papers and talking about sports and that stuff. Instead, he looks out the window of the train and projects a kingdom on this landscape. And, uh, it's just wonderful. And then what happens? Oh, he, he's missed his train to work, right? And the bosses are angry with him. And then the next thing we know, um, he's being coronated, uh, in this land that he's fully developed and all these regiments and this and camel trains and, Wonderful elephants and cities with wonderful names. And then the last line is basically, um, our last paragraph is, and over in this, uh, in Hanwell, which is, uh, sort of another, it's like Bedlam. It's another Arkham Asylum, except a real one in London. Mm-hmm. Um, the attendants are going their rounds and they find Mr. Thomas Shap is standing up when he should be in bed and they say, go to pretty bed now. Mm-hmm. Oh, that that's oh exactly. that, wow, that's tragic. So, what's so amazing is that you think, oh, it's just a it's just a story about what I just said, right? But as you know, as you look at the tiny little details, like for example, his name's kind of weird, right? Thomas Shap, and I was like, oh, that's yeah, it's interesting. It sounds reminds me of uh, Shape, which is another lo- a name for um, Neil Gaiman Sandman, right? Lord Shaper. The, uh-huh. the king of dreams, right? Oh, and that, it's cool. But Eric pointed out something really cool um, about that name. It's the Shap itself is an English word. It's just a very, very rare one, and it's to do with the husk of a a butterfly, or more importantly, a silkworm. Um, and you know, these are ground up <laughs> into to make silk clothing, but also it's the home for a transformation um so it's like that level of detail of tiny little 
you know, thing and you feel like it's just a nice little story and it's done and you can, you consumed it and you're finished. There's resonances there sometimes so strong that as I, I think one of the reviewers pointed out, uh, for another book I was tweeting about last night of his, uh, these stories will stay with you even if you don't think they will. Does this make sense? That, yeah. So here's a question, which mm-hmm. I think is, uh, um, relates what you were just talking about to Elfland here is where does magic come from? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's definitely, what's the word I'm looking for? It's definitely a limited resource because the Elf King only has the three spells, which is, which is interesting. It's like, which, which, which as a world builder makes me wonder, well, why only three? Where did he get the three? How did he make the three? And how could he ever make more? Is that it? That's all he can have? Like, why, th- why, why three? It's like, so, so, so yeah, I, think, I think that kind of lends itself to that mythic quality, right? This is stuff that's not always explained. Yeah. Um, well, let me, and- let me ask a, a more specific question. And that's all right. So we remember, uh, when our, I guess uh, the the guy from Earl is our protagonist. I don't know if we really have a protagonist in no. the story. I mean, um, Orion yeah. is kind of the protagonist at one point, and then that's true. Um, and uh, you know, the king of Elfland's daughter uh, is, is, is also a pregnant yeah, at some point. She's, she wants some things, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, anyway, so in uh, uh, the uh, uh, the Lord of Earl is. Uh, you know, going through these lands where uh, Elfland has uh, receded, like the sea, and he's coming across things. What is he coming across? Uh, I, I don't know. What do you, uh, what do you think? Well, okay. So here's what's going on here. Um, so he's he encountered a toy he had as a child. Oh yeah. He's he he's hearing like snippets of conversation, songs, like these sorts of things. His mm-hmm. like his wistful memories are like lost things. Right. Um, I mean, you know, it comes from like the, the magic of Elfland. It's this foreign thing, but it's also seems to be constituted of like what's going on in the heads of the people at Earl. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I think that's true. And uh, that's, it goes back to that manufacturer of the sword. Um, Right, it's it, it's it's made magical, and she's a witch, and we know this because she's, she's a, witch, a witch, right? <laughs> um, and you know, Paul's pointing out that there's the just the three runes, um, dude. I I teach magic, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Essay writing is something uh, parents are always pushing. And I, I I say, you know, the kids are too young for essay writing. Essay writing is something you do when you're. You know, in your mid twenties and you are into politics <laughs> or something or you're right. It's not normal. It's not a normal kind of spell casting. Normal spell casting is just putting beautiful words together. And so I teach them all the magic words, right? All the vocabulary mm-hmm. words about connotation and denotation. And of course, the rule of three. Uh, I read about it when I was very young, uh, in writing learning to write and it's like there's this thing it's called threefold magic and it just works and you can't question it um because it just works it's how it works and i'm like i don't know about that but then once you start looking all the magical stories that you know from childhood all have rules of three right there's the three little bears (laughs) goldilocks right um and there's the three little pigs and 
once you start looking for the structure of three examples or three thises or that, you can use four. I point out that, in fact, using four instead of three um, is also magic. And and you say, well, that this doesn't work, Jesse. That's because it's not falsifiable. Um, it's uh, maybe we shouldn't talk about politics, but there are, there is a person running for political office who has been taught the magical words, and he thinks that if he puts them together without any substance, <laughs> that that will somehow conjure up what, uh, the result that he's looking for and become president. Right. The problem is, is you actually do have to be talking about something. You cannot be talking about nothing, right? Um, and I know this because I, I sometimes will write nonsense poetry, right? You know, just a bunch of words that don't have a subject. And I'm like, yeah, this is not going to work, right? <laughs> but I'm enjoying it so much because it is that construction of the magical, the sounds together. That, with, that, 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 that repetition. I want to I wanna read repetition, something. absolutely. You'll, 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 rec- you'll recognize what this is. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an excerpt from this. Just the place for a snark, the bellman cried as he landed the crew with care, supporting each man on the top of the tide by a finger entwined in his hair. Just the place for a snark, I have said it twice. That alone should encourage the crew. Just the place for a snark, I have said it thrice. What I tell you three times is true. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, and I, I learned this not through Dunsany, but somebody, you know, obviously noted that. Dunsany is one of these magicians. He's a word word magician, is spellcaster, right? So the spell here I don't think is particularly powerful because we are already uh we three, we four are already um in this world. We're all we already know all about fantasy, right? But imagine yourself to be a book buyer who maybe wasn't a reader of the sketch or one of the many, uh, you know, the smart set, and you're in the book stands looking for something to brighten your day, uh, your terrible commute to work to the job that you hate, um, where people are mean, and you pick up this book, The King of Elfland's Daughter. I don't know about this. And you open it up and you see that preface, and it says, don't worry, this is this is not going to be as terrible as you think. It's, in fact, that Ballantine publication, uh, Scott, you've got, um, the earlier 1969 one, they say adult fantasy, right? Yeah, Valentine adult fantasy. Right. right, and the adult fantasy part is like, well, why, why, why would we need that? Well, it, in fact, that's the whole thing of that's really Dunsany's thing is that all his characters are adults, right? They're all adults who live in a fantasy world, somehow connecting with it, and. That's, I think, a really cool thing that he's doing. So we're, I don't think we're in the perfect position to appreciate it because we're so familiar with all the fantasy that came later. Mm. Um, I yeah. do, I do, uh, if, uh, but before, no, before yeah, you before. go on, I'd mm-hmm. love to, uh, did you know that, uh, Gaiman wrote, Neil Gaiman wrote a preface to this book? I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I found, it was on Amazon and I was able to, you know, through the, you mm-hmm. know, see me, uh, see a couple pages of it, but he loves it. No doubt. Um, and, uh, he says, perhaps this book should come with a warning. It's not a reassuring by the numbers fantasy novel. Like most of the books with elves, princes, trolls, and unicorns between their covers. This is the real thing. It's a rich red wine. 
which may come as a shock if all one has had so far has been cola. <laughs> so trust the book, trust the poetry and the strangeness and the magic of the ink and drink it slowly. See, he he mm-hmm. is also a true magician, a practitioner, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and what's funny is, is like I used to, I don't know, I didn't believe... <laughs> I guess I'm like, he can't be, this can't be what he's really, I'm talking about Alan Moore now. He -hmm. can't really believe what he's saying here. It's, this is, he's trolling them, right? When he says, I'm a magician, (laughs) 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 but he's not, he's not trolling them. He believes it. And he's also correct. Um, (laughs) the fact that he can put people under a spell, uh, by giving them facts and story and melding them together and making, making something. And sometimes the spells don't work as well as they should, right? They mm-hmm. don't have the perfect effects. One of the uh, ingredients is wrong, or they're not called ingredients. What are they called, Paul? Uh, so, elements? Elements. Yeah, I don't know. Something you need for your spell, right? Mm-hmm. You need to gather some roots or oh. herbs or whatever oh. from Dungeons & Dragons, oh. you know. Oh, well, uh, blah, 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 blah. my brain's not working because of the virus. <laughs> oh, um, spell components. Components, there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the components wasn't fresh enough or whatever. Um, sometimes, the, but you, you just heard it in Neil Gaiman's introduction there, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. he's, he's saying it's a wine. Very clever. Mm-hmm. This is, and the, it, the thing is, is you, you can use your, you know, I say to my, my students, I'm teaching them, there's this powerful word that we can use here to solve your problem, right? They need something to, to keep going in this paragraph, but they're not allowed to, you know, you know, it's, the way they structure essays for school, the, the whole bunch of stupid rules that they have to do. And, you know, there's a topic sentence and there's this and I right? It's like very training wheels sort of writing. I say, okay, I'm going to teach you this magic word. And when you use this magic word, I want you to never, ever, ever use it more than once per essay. Okay. You're allowed to use it once per essay, but it's so powerful that if you, if if you use it more than once, they will notice that it's magic and that'll break the spell. <laughs> I like literally say this to the students. And I go, where does this? And I say the word is indeed. <laughs> 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 because see what indeed does, and I explain it to them, is indeed says yes, I agree with myself. <laughs> so so you've, you've you've given some, you know, three or four facts in the previous couple of sentences, right? <laughs> and then you say Indeed. And then you give a few more facts. It allows you to um, add to your threefold magic that you've already put in. Um, but you can't use it every paragraph because then they'll notice. <laughs> and that's actually what, that's what's true. That's true. And it's that's actually that's... true. Right. <laughs> and, and yet you can use other tricks multiple times uh, per essay and, and they won't notice. But if you break the spell, you know, if you if you say the wrong word or you it's like Rumpelstiltskin, that story, right? You can't say his name or it defeats his whole purpose. Um, uh, well, name, names have power, Jesse. Absolutely. And true names true have names. even more power. Um, you you read a bit from that Neil Gaiman. I want to read the uh, original Lynn Carter. Mm, yeah. Um, and I not, was surprised that my copy of that book doesn't have the Lynn Carter yeah, intro. It, it got a copyright in 1969, so uh, okay. it's not going to be in the PDF, but here it is. Yeah. 
Uh, about the King of Elfland's Daughter by and Lord Dunsany. Uh, Beyond the Fields We Know is what he subtitled. He also put out a later book uh, collecting a bunch of Dunsany stories, I think called Beyond the Fields We Know. So mm-hmm. he's he's been captured by the spell, right? Uh, it goes like this. Uh, one of the four or five genuinely great exponents of the adult fantasy of the adult fantasy was Edward John Morton Drax Plunkett, the 18th Baron of the ancient line, which stretches back almost 1000 years to the Norman conquest. Lord Dunsany was born in 1878 in Castle Dunsany in a 12th century fortress, which was his ancestral home. Uh, I think fortress is a little bit more. It's, it's more of a castle than a fortress. Um, in County Meath, Ireland, among hills that were already rich in song and fable a thousand years before his Norman ancestors came a conquering by the right hand of the Duke of William the Bastard, <laughs> these lands were the age-old demons of the Ard, Ardri, the emperors of ancient Celts. In Meath was Terra of the kings, so sacred and venerable that the king who held it became high king of all Ireland. Thus the hills and fields of Dunsany's childhood were steeped in a golden legend, and some of the enchantment and music of antique Tara entered into his wonderful stories. Lord Dunsany was an astounding man, a sensitive poet, an enthusiastic huntsman, and in- you see that in this book too, uh, an inveterate globetrotter. Uh, he was always off hunting lions on safari in Africa or teaching English literature in Athens, from which he escaped one jump ahead of the Nazis when... They invaded. Yet he found time to write over 60 books, novels of modern life, works of fantasy, short story collections, mysteries, scores of plays. Oh, yeah. His plays are really cool. Uh, mm. Scott, you should check them out. I think you really do. Yes. Uh, cool. Volumes of verse, autobiography, essays, and even a complete translation of Horace. A backward-looking traditionalist who scorned modern poetry and me- mechanized life and wrote every one of his 60-odd books with a quill pen. He yet proved to be an enormous, widespread, and influential force on writers who came after him, and continues to be so to this day. So that'd be 1969. Graduate of Eton and Sandhurst, he served as an officer in the Coldstream Guards, worked with Yates at the Abbey Theatre in Dublin, toured America on reading tours, and seems to have lived a full, exciting, and adventurous life. It makes you wonder how he had time for those 60-plus books. I met him in. Yeah, 19- when did he sleep? Yeah, right. I met him <laughs> well, in nineteen. 1950- like he didn't have to work, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, there's that. I mean, it is work, but yeah, he is not laboring like the other laborers, right? Yeah. But he's he's quite sensitive to it. It's it's very cool. Uh, I met him in 1954 on what must have been his last speaking tour of America. During an earlier tour in November of 1919, a deeply moved young member of his audience was then amateur writer H.P. Lovecraft who was still years away from becoming the most celebrated American author of supernatural tales since Edgar Allan Poe. And I note that he spelled Allen wrong. A-L-L-E-N. Uh, when I first saw him on the evening of February 24th, 1954, at the Teresa L. Kaufman Auditorium of New York's YMYWHA, I guess that's like the YMCA for women, Young Men's Young Women's HA, what's HA stand for? I don't know. Mm. Poetry Center. Dunsany was tall, slender, erect, a vigorous man for a then 76th year. He had ruddy apple cheeks, sparkling frosty blue eyes, a trim little spike of a snowy goatee, and was dressed in a sloppy baggy suit of nondescript grayish tweeds, which is with a soft-colored white shirt and a loosely tied old-fashioned forelard instead of a tie. Like Lovecraft, I too was deeply moved. 
Dunsany was linked to greatness, descended from the Companions of Kings, holder of one of the most ancient baronial titles in the British Isles. He had known Yeats, and he had remembered the death of Tennyson. He was one of the very greatest fantasy writers who ever lived. Al Sprague de Camp has said, Dunsany was the second writer, William Morris in the 1880s being the first, fully to exploit the possibilities of heroic fantasy, adventurous fantasy laid in imaginary lands, with gods, witches, spirits, and magic, like children's fairy tales, but on a sophisticated adult level. But more than this, Dunsany was probably the single greatest influence on the fantasy writers during the first half of the 20th century. Lovecraft, in early fiction like a rare novel, The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, imitated him slavishly and very well. Robert E. Howard, the creator of Conan the Sumerian and founder of the popular sword and sorcery school of fantasy writing, read him and came under his spell, as did Clark Ashton Smith, whose exquisitely mordant fails show unmistakable traces of Zansanian influence. And that is absolutely true. Uh, DeCamp, Fletcher Pratt, Fritz Leiber, and I think Jack Vance, uh, I think is in parentheses reveal signs of Dunsanian flavor. And Dunsanian's, uh, and Dunsany's Jorkin's tales are direct progenitors of such books as Arthur C. Clarke's Tales of the White Heart and Pratt and DeCamp's Tales of the Gavigan's Bar. And I, I'm going to add this in here. And also those uh, uh, Larry Niven books, the fantasy stories set in a bar, are also derived from it. I'm trying to remember. The, you know the one I mean, Scott? I don't. I don't know. No, 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 Draco uh, Tavern. Tales uh, of the Draco did, Tavern. Oh, did the, no, those were science fiction, not fantasy. Yes. Oh, yes. I understand that, Paul. But okay, okay, you said fantasy. It's like, wait a minute. Larry Nairson, fantasy no, bar? No, it's a science fiction bar. In fact, in, in the Arthur C. Clarke Tales of the White Heart are also uh, – they're they're mixed, right? Oh, you're talking about the Draco Tavern? Yes, the Draco yeah. Tavern. So, okay. yeah. Tales of the White Heart, Tales of Gavigan's mm-hmm. Bar, and Tales of the Draco Tavern, which hadn't been written at the time of this publication. Wh- wh- which kind which kind of goes all the way up to the 1980s and Thieves World, where Indeed. a lot of, a lot of is, stories are stuck around the, the bar. Sort of the influence of Dunsany. And then uh, he also says, my own short story cycle of Smyrna. The Dream World, by the way, is admittedly Dunsanian. That's uh, Lynn Carter's book. A long-neglected masterpiece. Uh, Sorry, go for it. There's more still, but go for it. Oh, no, I was just, like, laughing at, like, uh, Lynn Carter's, like, uh, self-boosterism here. I mean, he just, like, really likes to write, like, books that have already been written, you know? Yes, yes. There was a recent, uh, I think it was Appendix N, was it? That was uh, talking about a Lynn Carter book, and they were saying, you know, he doesn't mind telling you, or maybe I'm restating what they were implying. He doesn't mind telling you that he read all these great books while you're reading a book that's sort of like imitating <laughs> all those other books. It was a very early, um, it was after Dungeons and Dragons had been created, but it, and it had the same spell system and stuff like that, but it was not actually a Dungeons and Dragons book, but it could have been set in Greyhawk or something, right? Anyways, I'm going to finish this off here. A long-neglected masterpiece. The King of Elfland's Daughter is beyond all question the best of Dunsany's fantasy novels. First printed in May 1924, it has long since faded into obscurity, from which this first paperback edition, which may also be the first new printing of the novel in some 45 years, may, I hope, rescue it. For although some... Uh, what flawed in conception, it has passages of amazing power and unearthly beauty. And it scintillates, there's a good vocab word, 
With a brilliant surface of exotic names and fabulous imagery, the novel tells of young Alverick, Prince of the Vale of Earl, who ventures beyond the fields we know into the twilight meadows of fairy and brings back as his bride Lirazel, the elf princess. They beget a son, but soon Lir- Lirazel drifts back into Elfland and Alverick goes searching for her. Armed with an enchanted sword, the witch Zurundarel has forged for him upon from unearthly steel from unearthly steel the witch lived in the upland says dunsany on the high quote on the high land near the thunder which used to roll in summer along the hills there she dwelt by herself in a narrow cottage of thatch and roamed the high fields alone to gather the thunderbolts alverick's sword is forged out of 17 thunderbolts gathered from under the cabbage leaves for he feels the need for a sword made from no mundane metal and off he goes to search again for the lost road to Elfland, while his son Orion grows to manhood and becomes a mighty hunter, uh, uh, a master of adult fantasy. You can see what Dunsany has done here, a stylistic experiment of extraordinary subtlety. Most fairy tales end with, quote, and they were married and lived happily ever after. But Dunsany knows this could not be so, for Alverick was of mortal blood and hearkened after earthly things. But Lirazel was neither mortal nor earthly. She was the king of Elfland's daughter. The marriage was doomed from the beginning, and to Dunsany's lasting credit goes the honor of having written a fairy tale that dares to tell you what happened afterward. This is the essence of Lord Dunsany's power and importance of both, uh, importance both as literary craftsman and as a fantasy writer, that he combines the style and settings of the classical fairy tale with the adult and sophisticated viewpoint welding the two diverse elements into one matchless whole through his lyric singing prose. Only a writer of the first order would dare attempt anything like that, and only an artist of brilliant imaginative gifts could pull it off as he pulled it off in the tale after tale. For not only was Dunsany a magnificent storyteller, but one of the last great masters of English prose, perhaps superior to Tolkien in subtle artistry, and at least equal to those great stylists in all fantasy, James Branch Cabell, E.R. Edison, uh, and E.R. Edison. In one of his letters to Clark Ashton Smith, H.P. Lovecraft said, quote, His rich language, his cosmic point of view, his remote dream worlds, his exquisite sense of the fantastic all appeal to me more than anything else in modern literature. This accolade is no less true today than when it was written half a century ago. Lynn Carter, editorial consultant, the Ballantine Adult Fantasy Series, Hollis, Long Island, New York. So, uh, I think Lynn Carter is exactly right. He is promoting the book a little bit, but that's fine. He's promoting his own book a little bit too. I don't think he was over, uh, he's, this is not an August derelict, right? Lynn Carter wasn't saying, I am the equal of Lovecraft <laughs> when he was, Clearly not the equal. I think Lynn Carter knew his limitations, um, but was happy to be in the room, right? And I, I think this is a very solid um, introduction, but yeah, it's not, it's not Neil Gaiman, right? Neil Gaiman <laughs> is Neil Gaiman. Lynn Carter is just, just a guy who's really enthusiastic, kind of like me. <laughs> <laughs> a guy who appreciates good magic, but not actually... Uh, a magician? Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> a low level. I, I say I'm a high well, level magician, but that's only compared yeah, yeah, to my Neil, students. Neil Gaiman is a magician. Clearly. Uh, well, I mean, he even got tuckerized into a Paul Cornell Shadow Police novel, basically dealing with real magic. So, yeah. 
well, he's, he, the, the only real magic is is the magic of these uh, word spells that they cast upon us, right? So, if Paul Cornell says, you know, magi- game is a real magician, then I believe it. <laughs> well, he's certainly a multimillionaire, so... Well, he's, he's that right. too, and out of the, out of the four of us, I live the closest to him, although I don't know exactly where he lives. So I, I know multiple people who know where he lives, including a personal house this one, but I've still not yet met Neil Gaiman. No, I'm not bitter. It's just one of those things. <laughs> he deserves his privacy. Yes, he does. I, um, yeah, it. I was going to say, I like, I don't know if I would want to meet Neil, Neil Gaiman because it'd just be like, what am I going to say to Neil Gaiman? Exactly. exactly. Yeah, what's he going to say to me? Like, we don't understand each other. Like, he's like, it's just, we're not going to have much to talk about. Well, you, like, you know, I know you and you know me. And we know him, but he doesn't know us. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So I, I, I've had like a few Twitter conversations with him, but they're not deep. They're just like, here's a picture of me in my class reading uh, the graveyard book. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, uh, he sends a poster and signs it. And, and I say, now we're selling it on eBay. <laughs> 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 and we're splitting the profits. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think yeah, that's he's a, he's a spiritual figure, though. Like people want a piece of him, right? Yes. Like, that's, yes. That's what it means a... for him to be a magician, and that's why yes. he's so successful. Is because he's got this uh, aura around him. I mean, he you know he made this like comic book series where like yes. the main character looks like an awful lot like him, huh? Yes. Yes. And uh, just everybody loves him as a result of all of his beautiful writing. So yes. yeah, he is a magician. His charisma, I think he generally doesn't use it for evil. He uses it for good. So even though yeah. he dresses in black, um, he's like, he's like his character death. Um, you know, <laughs> you gotta like her even if, uh, you know she's dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I'm. I, I think Neil Gaiman is, is on that level. He's he's on the Dunsany level. He's on the. Uh, I mean, Heinlein is not a magician, but he's uh, he's in that 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 level, mm. right? Just really, uh, Lynn Carter. Uh, didn't you suggest we do a book on Lynn Carter? Lynn Carter book, Paul. I was like, no, it was not me. Ah, okay, somebody did. Well, Let's test a thesis. So, because um, mm-hmm. the Heinlein thing made me think of this, uh, uh, the the fantasy author who's successful is a magician. Uh, the science fiction author who's successful is a philosopher. Yeah, well, Philip K. Dick is definitely a philosopher of science fiction, right? Yeah. Uh, alchemist is that what a, a, a science fiction writer would be? It's. Uh, um, <laughs> it, no, I'm, thinking takes, of, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about that. And, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the good science fiction is idea filled, right? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't always have to be philosophy. It could be scientific as well. Mm-hmm. That's um, why like Arthur, Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke, would he be a philosopher? Um, well, it's funny because he's actually the most re- – he's probably the most religious science fiction writer there is. I, I completely agree yep. with that. So, the, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's he, – you know, saying spiritual almost is the wrong word <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because it is so uh, – maybe the only other person that's in, in the competition is like Olaf Stapleton or something. Um, Gene Wolfe. Doris Lessing. Hmm. Hmm. 
Oh, we got all sorts of metaphors going, and you know what they are. They're all magic. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, so yeah, that, they're we're... not testable in the normal sense, right? When, yeah. When, when, once you start uh, arguing in terms of not facts and like what actually was said and, you know, who was involved for dropping those bombs, <laughs> giving <laughs> the order and that sort of thing, basically, uh, you, what you're arguing is, Whose magic is better? <laughs> whose whose spellcast is better? Can I dispel this with a word? Um, and so it's dangerous. This is where danger lies. Magic is dangerous. It, it can, you know, make you think things are the way okay. they aren't. Oh, a di- different thesis. Different thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think related. Okay, philosophy is the magic of science fiction. Hmm. I th- well, like Hal Clement. He's not a philosopher of science fiction, right? I, I mean, I'm not familiar if, with him. No, okay. no, he's definitely not a philosopher. He's, so a, he's how, hard science fiction. So he set, sets a uh, story on a planet with uh, an alien species. And, like, you could say it's philosophy, but I would say that it's a very narrow branch of philosophy. Uh, everything is a very narrow branch. He's not, try, he's not trying to do philosophy. He's, try, he's setting out a puzzle on the world. Yeah, it's and a puzzle. What, what, yeah. So puzzles it, not philosophy. So the you know, well, there's uh, uh, like a great connection between mysteries, mystery fiction, and science fiction. You see that a lot in Asimov's work, right? Puzzles, With, yeah. Yeah. Well, like for example, um, his most famous is The Naked Sun, I think. Uh, in terms of it's a murder mystery set in a science fiction setting, right? Well, all right. Let let me take this a bit further. It's um, so. I think the philosophy has the same power of magic, which is to make something that is actually one way seem totally another way. Okay. Um, so when I say philosophy is the magic of science fiction, so like... Uh, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, that's the magical thinking that uh, like the, the science fictioneer would rely on would have to be philosophy. Um, is that's how you make yes, something into something but, that it's not. But I, I, into, or into something different. Uh, to broaden your point, as Eric would say, or something like that. He'd say something very, uh, diplomatic. I think that you're, oh, no, he would say to supplement your point. See there? There's much better vocabulary, <laughs> right? Um, a supplementary thought, or a complementary thought, but supplementary is his favorite word. <laughs> it, it's a better dig. It, it, no, no, it's not a negative. It's, it's, it's also, it, it actually, that's the, the great part. When Eric criticizes your thing by, saying something like what I'm about to say, it actually makes you happy because it isn't a <laughs> criticism in the normal sense. It's a, oh, and I see what you're doing and I'm polishing up what you're doing by pointing you to this part of it that's really interesting. So I, uh, before I forget what I was going to say, <laughs> getting all subtract, subtracted by uh-huh. the vocabulary. <laughs> Distracted? Distracted. <laughs> that's it. Um, you're saying that the philosophy is the... Is, is the magic of science fiction. So yes. it does the same, it plays the same role in a fantasy as, uh, or it plays the role of magic in a fantasy as it does in a science fiction. Philosophy is the stand in for science fiction. And I will say, to supplement your point, <laughs> that, uh, philosophy in its earliest form is indistinguishable from science. That yes. is to say, natural philosophy is science, and they eventually change the name of it, and the philosophers spend it all their time talking about art and, uh, you know, how many, how many, uh, 
kinds of matter there are and where existence begins and that sort of thing. And the scientists said, let's look at this snail here and see why it does that and compare it to this other snail and this thing that's a slug that's like a snail. Yesterday, I was looking at uh, nautiluses with uh, one of my students. Have you ever seen a nautilus? They're cool as heck. Fuck, they they have the weirdest fucking eyes you've ever seen. They Mm. they look like mushrooms, their eyes. And the way they grow is incredibly weird. Like, they basically curl around themselves (laughs) and get bigger and bigger and bigger. And they fly around backwards everywhere. And all their guts are sort of in the same direction. And they're incredibly ancient and weird, right? And the fact that we can sort of see the connection between them and squids and octopuses and then it is another kind of magic, right? Science. It's, it's a way of knowing. That's what science means. And magic yeah. is, is, is sort of, it's, it's like the difference between lore. You know, when I teach students the word lore, I say that's like not the same as knowledge because lore is about story. And the story helps you understand the, the area that you live in and what plants are good to eat and what ones are dangerous and how to start fires and, um, you know, why, why it's always a good idea to go this way rather than that way. And so it's, it's not subject to the same rules as science is, which is all about questioning and testing and not trusting. Lore is about, uh, this is the way we do it because we, we, we know it works. We don't know why it works. And that's the same, like, it's like analyzing jokes or doing the questioning why threefold magic works. Dude, it's threefold magic. It works. You don't need to understand how it works. I mean, you can try. Good luck there. Just keep using it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, analyzing why jokes works is really fun, but it doesn't make, it doesn't necessarily give you the power to replicate all jokes. Right. Sometimes jokes don't have a normal structure and still work. Yeah. Something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, sorry that I got us off this uh, Mm -mm. track, but I think that I think there's something here uh, because I think that uh, uh, there's something profoundly philosophical um, about the way that magic is used in this novel mm-hmm. um, and the way that like people react to magic in this novel. Uh, I think that, uh, I mean, once we, we start in with this uh, introduction, uh, which I agree with you, Jesse, that it's uh, tongue in cheek, mm-hmm. um, the preface, uh, like, but it's, it's tongue in cheek, but the way that magic exists in this story, uh, the things that are important in this story, um, uh, you know, uh, Lord Dunsany is like, you know, he's making a statement about like the world as it is. Right. It's, it's, it's kind of subtle about the world as, uh, because what he, I think it's almost like he is trying to convert people to his belief system, which yes. is be enchanted with the world that we have and don't exactly. evangelist for fantasy. Yes. Uh, except except he wouldn't say. say it is fantasy, right? Because he's so early. He's saying, be enchanted with the world that we have. It's amazing. And that's why he's studying, you know, fencing and chess and all that stuff. Because he's, he's just enthusiastic for life in the same way that Dean Spanley as a puppy was. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. um, 
You know, you only only a person who is enthusiastic could lie for life could come up with that concept, right? He hear, hears about reincarnation and doesn't say, "I did I used to be a a famous lord?" Because he's born a famous lord, right? <laughs> and he says, "Could could I have possibly been a a beagle in a previous life?" Because <laughs> I love hunting. <laughs> so, um, uh, you guys will notice um that Orion is playing uh, a sort of a a role outside of this book in our world. How so? Uh, at one point, uh, well, yeah, other than hunting the unicorn and stuff like that, at one point he he uh, mounts a stag on his head, and he's collecting all the dogs from the land. Mm-hmm. Oh, wild hunt! It's the wild hunt, and he's Hearn in a I certain sense, right? Yes, yes, Hearn the hunter. He that Hearn the hunter. And the wild hunt come up so many times in just like the last little while. It's so surprising to me that I don't know, didn't notice it before. You know, like when I've read, it's in, it's in the, uh, the Legends of Lore or is it Dungeon, uh, Monster Manual? I can't remember. Uh, no, uh, Deities and Demigods. Deities and Demigods. Yeah. Okay. Celtic so lore, that's yeah. when I first heard of, of Hearn and the wild hunt, but, uh, you know, I've seen it in other stories. Over the years, but just like in the last year, I was like, man, it's, it's everywhere. It's, a, anytime there's hunting involved. We just did that uh, book. Uh, the Sound called, of His Horn by the, Sarban. Right, Sarban's The Sound of His Horn. And that, is, again, is a, another hunting book. And the relate, I, I guess it's because of all the veganism that's happening and taking over the world. Is it? Well, it's, it's like a, it's a new movement. It's, you know, spiritualism was a huge movement in the 19th century. Veganism is like, it's super on the rise. It is, okay. Well, see, I feel like when I came of age, like, you know, like, like 12 years ago, mm-hmm. I, uh, <laughs> um, you know, veganism was really huge, like around 2005, mm-hmm. but I, I feel like it went away for a while, but, uh, I mean, I'm okay with it coming back. I mean, I'm a, I'm a vegetarian. I really, mm-hmm. uh, I think the thing I, I most respect about, uh, uh, Lord Dunsany is that he was, you know, part of the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Mm-hmm. He like thought people should and also like, shooting bomb lions. Their dogs. Yeah, I mean, he's like a bad man. Uh, I could get into <laughs> that. Uh, uh, you know, like uh, he's this. It's like you know, we call him Anglo-Irish, which is like you know, a way of saying he is like he's not. He's not a common Irishman. Yeah, he's not an Irishman. He's not, he's not the non-white Irish. <laughs> right, right. I mean, he's, uh, you know, from a family that has been installed to rule the Irish because they cannot rule themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that's what his position is here. Um, in 1918 or thereabouts, uh, like he took a bullet to the head, like uh, being involved in putting down the Eastern Rising, the Easter Rising in mm-hmm. Dublin. Like he's like, you know, against like like Ireland being a country that can rule itself, mm-hmm. um, you know. So he, you know, he's not like the greatest dude, but uh, everybody's full of contradictions. Yeah, but he, he, what I really love about him is, um, I think we've, uh, you know, uh, the rich of like the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, uh, you know, they like understood that they could use their position into in society to become like very vigorous and interesting people you know yes. like he's like i'm gonna like learn to shoot i'm gonna learn to shoot billiards i'm gonna become a novelist i'm like i'm gonna, gonna be, be a, a soldier yep. yeah i'm and, gonna travel around the world yeah yeah like he like he fought in the boer war he fought in world war one he like 
you know, fought in the Anglo-Irish Wars. Like he's a, you know, he's a soldier. He's like a vigorous person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, like I feel like today, like somebody who was born into Lord Dunsany's family uh, would be expected to like go into business and like become like just the Definitely. most boring person in the world. Well, they don't uh, have the revenue that they used to, right? Oh, that's true. That, 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 I mean, that's a really strange phenomenon that's happening all over the UK, right? Is, and we see it with what, what's that show called? Um, uh, like High Clare Castle show. It was upstairs, downstairs, except fancy. Oh, you mean Downton Abbey? Downton Abbey, right? <laughs> uh, they even made the servants fancy, which was pretty funny. Um, anyways, uh, you know, the, the, yeah, the, it's interesting because I see in people like Lovecraft who who started off that way, right, as a basically a lord, um, and uh, Dunsany for sure, and probably lived that way his whole life, right. You can see a flourishing in people uh, who have the ability to not worry about cash flow, <laughs> paying the rent, uh, where whether they can afford school. And we, we have that a lot more today. And, of, of course, we have it a lot less as well, just because we have both. But he's not, um, he's not uh, only one way for sure, right? But that enthusiasm is something we can have. And yeah. And I think like veganism it, to me is like, it's a rising religion of some kind in the same way. <laughs> and, you know, um, there was a really funny line um, about this uh, movie. I, I was going through in 1911. Oh, there you go. It's a 1911 magazine called the sketch, which is for basically wealthy people and rich people. There's an American version called, our American magazine that's the same thing. And this is where Lord Dunsany was published, right? Um, called uh, The Smart Set, which is like, witty and clever pictures. And I tweeted some images of the cartoons that are in there. And it's it's basically like The New Yorker, except for Brits, right? Um, and uh, one of the stories was uh, a picture of Churchill in the witness chair uh, to describe this 19... 19- uh, 11 shootout uh, where the army was brought in uh, because there was a bank bank heist and some uh, guys had holed up and they shot some cops and right so they brought in a, a Maxim machine gun and it's like a whole deal there's a fire right so he's in there for that uh, Churchill's in there for that and then I looked it up and there was a movie actually a couple movies made out of it and one of the lines <laughs> In the movie is quote um, uh, explaining what what's going on right uh, Churchill's standing there uh, <laughs> with the cops and the army all around him they're saying well, what's going on what, what what are we all doing here right explaining the plot he says uh, anarchists and vegetarians <laughs> <laughs> they go together <laughs> so if you have a if you're a vegetarian it's not usually because you can't afford meat. It's because you choose not to eat meat. Like Eric's a vegetarian as well, right? And uh, uh, so is um, uh, Evan, right? Um, and it's not r- religious for them. It's not like uh, my body is a pure temple that nothing can go in it that is uh, sinful. Therefore, I don't eat meat. Rather, it's more the other way. It's like um, I, I, I think about it. Uh, it's probably not the greatest thing to eat meat all the time. And, uh, you know, it's also nice not to 
kill, uh, think about killing animals and such like that. I mean, I don't know what's going to your thinking. Uh, yeah, no, but, well, but you're, I, you're I guess right. it's something like that, right? It's a philosophical position. Right. Um, yeah, like, and know, it's, and, and it's a, just an abstinence. It's not like veganism, which is, it's more militant, right? And the thing is, uh, is vegetarian well, yeah, and they has eat been, less things. <laughs> yes, that's right. But, but it's like, it's a following on, right? It's falling down the same path. And, well, and it also, I mean, there's an element of it that's like 19th century vegetarianism too, yes. where it's, uh, uh, I just remembered that my brother is going vegan, which is like a totally strange thing. So I think you're <laughs> right. Um, and my brother's like a guy who works out all the time. Yeah, and he's on this like uh, vegan bodybuilder thing. Oh, dude, I know so many people like that. It's insane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that, yeah. So I think uh, I think I just wasn't paying attention. You're right, Jesse. Veganism is coming back. And, well, and my and brother not is just, one of them. Yeah, and like it's subtle because it's not it's not like there's a prominent uh person leading it. It it's a ground up sort of uh you meet a vegan and it's it, because there's so many people who are not religious, Scott mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> anymore. Um it sort of fulfills the same need and it, it gives sort of the same kind of assurance, I think. Right? Like um I want to be a good person. <laughs> I want uh, I want to not be doing bad on the earth, right? Um, mm. What are the rules for me? <laughs> and then some guy at the gym who's really buff says, you know, if you stop eating meat like me and if you stop eating, you know, uh, the products of milk and all that, then uh, you're not only not seeing these horrible videos and feeling guilty about them, you're also <laughs> – Making your body better because humans were not designed to eat or whatever they say. I have no idea. <laughs> but uh, but the fact that there's all these guys at the gym and they are usually guys buffing <laughs> uh, <laughs> themselves up and and only eating you know grain grain fed and veggie fed <clears throat> stuff makes me laugh because it, it, I'm like there's one that when the cannibalism religion comes in and I I don't know if I'll sign up for it but I'm assuming I won't uh, right now I'm doing arm curls by the way <laughs> <laughs> when the cannibalism comes in I know that the vegans are going to be like um the premium beef <laughs> because they the dude they're going to be grain fed they're going to be <laughs> they're going to be so yummy no delicious oh, you know like you don't it's like sustainable right that's oh, sustainable uh, you know uh. Morally hard. Like I buy the I buy the uh, brown eggs, free range eggs. They're more expensive, but they taste better, you know. Mm-hmm. So I know but, that the vegans are going to taste a lot better than the, you know, the corn fed. Uh, I'm. I don't know how we went from Lord Dunsany <laughs> to cannibalism. I do. It's, I was it's just about to say that. It's That's it's fun. it's clearly it's about the you know. The Lord Dunsany would be vegan if he were alive today is <laughs> what we're right. trying to it's, get at. Uh, or ve- yeah, or vegetarian. Yeah, that, that I get, but the cannibalism is a bridge too far. <laughs> it, it's stepping out of Elfland and into Never Never Land. I, th- oh, uh, you know, I think Jesse has his uh, – I think the cannibalism is coming from like Jesse's id. Like It's like <laughs> – you know, he has like a like a cannibalism libido that he like isn't <laughs> dealing with. I don't know. I'm not really a Freudian. Um, <laughs> one, of the, one of the things I highlighted in this novel was um, you remember that witch. Uh-huh. At one point, she used the thigh bone of a materialist as right. part of her magic. Right. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Materialist is someone who denies the the uh, duality of 
of of spirit and uh, matter, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a very anti-materialist novel, which is like kind of contradictory because it's also a novel where like the substance of magic is like all things from our material world. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, no, he's he's he, he, that's why I'm saying he's poking and playful. And yeah, it's, it's very fun. Um, I was thinking about this because uh, I'm, I think a lot about why so many people aren't going vegan, and because it's kind of weird. Like it, it, these things come into uh, because I'm always looking at the ancient magazines. I, I'm seeing these trends come in waves and build up and become more pop. Like, didn't Richard Dawkins just say like uh, eugenics? Good work or something like that. Yes. <laughs> oh Very silly. I'm shocked right? that he said that. Did like, he really? Oh my god. Yeah. yeah. What about Richard Dawkins? It wouldn't be right. Not it, believe that. it wouldn't be like, right. He said, but it, it it would definitely work. And I'm like, mm, yeah, I think you're not. <laughs> you should stick to uh, whatever it was you were working on before. And you know, <laughs> the thing is, is people get uh, you know after a certain age, people can just go off. It happens quite a bit, but um. I don't know. Anyways, I, I was thinking about this, and then I tweeted this because of all the Lord Dunsany I was thinking about. Um, uh, this is – I don't know if you saw this, Paul. Uh, new proposal for assigning alignment outside of role-playing games. So I'm, no, I did not see that. <laughs> because uh, I always think uh, – I'm explaining it to students, you know uh, – what makes something lawful or, you know, is Trump a chaotic evil or is he what, you know, chaotic neutral? Or, he's definitely chaotic. He's not, he's not chaotic good. That's for sure. But he's, he might be chaotic neutral, but maybe he's chaotic evil. I'm not sure. Anyways, um, I'm like trying to explain these concepts. And, and that's why I came up with a new list ones. It's, uh, goes like this. Um, uh, historied historian. So it's a historian who knows history. <laughs> Unagended historian, which is like a neutral historian. I, I'm just studying this stuff. And then agended historian. And then that's like Neil Ferguson, if you know who he is. He's always, he, he makes really good documentaries about, you know, economics and stuff. And then like, oh yeah, I noticed how you didn't talk about this, this or this, right? Cause he's got an agenda. Um, and then, uh, Unlawful vegan. <laughs> I don't know what that means exactly. Unlawful omnivore and then lawful cannibal. See, <laughs> that's maybe where I, I will land. We'll find out. Lawful cannibal. <laughs> yeah. Jesse's in the, the make cannibalism legal party. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. It's about religious freedom. I haven't tried it yet. Um, and then the final category would be uh, a libertarian buffet enthusiast. I see a lot of these online, you know, they, they like libertarianism to a massive degree, but are very picky and choosy about where they want it. Um, uh, then I think this is probably the best, you know, this is like the uh, version of uh, lawful good or, you know, it's, it's what paladins would be truly principled. <laughs> That's what I'd like to be. But uh, I, I realize I'm probably not that I am probably the final one, which is polite chaos agent. Polite chaos agent. Yes. Because yeah. unfortunately, I I want to tear everything down, but also I don't want to make anybody feel bad about it. Yeah, I think that's probably why you and I align. Yes, um, you know, like <laughs> very polite, like, but also want to rock the rock the establishment just, to its core. Just burn it to the ground, that's like what, really to the ground. But, uh, would you start come on, again. please? We need to burn your house down. 
<laughs> yeah, like it's not about you. It's about your house. That's like, right. It's about your position. We we want you as a person on our team, but you're quite awful. So please come out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's it to a, to a nutshell. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Would you read more Lord Dunsany if this is the only novel you read of his? Probably. Okay. Yeah, I would. I'd read some shorts for sure. Dude, that's what you need to do is you really need to read his short stuff. He's, he's really good as a, sh- a short story writer. Um, there's a one I did years and years ago called The Highwayman. I don't know if I told you this one, Scott. It's really good. It's about three thieves who are, um, you know, sworn brothers. They, they, uh, the, they're horrible human beings. They're murderers. They're rapists. They're everything you can imagine that's bad. Three high women. Um, and one of them gets caught and he's hung. Um, and rightly so, right? Uh, and then the, t- the other two, they're horrible human beings and they're bastards. They cheat each other, uh, if they could, but, um, they're definitely against the man. <laughs> so they go and cut down, uh, the, uh, the, uh, body of their men, uh, of their man who was caught and, they put him on a ladder, which they used to cut him down, and carry his bones. He, his bones rotted until, like, he sti- his ghost is trapped within the um, within the uh, corpse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and totally they, normal. Totally normal. And they bring him to uh, holy ground, and they then go into the cemetery and they find the nicest grave they can, which is uh, that of an archbishop. And they dig him up and they take him outside and bury him in the unholy earth because his spirit has already passed away um it's fine and so they go grab their guy from the ladder that they're carrying his corpse on and they bury him in the archbishop's uh uh coffin and then we see from the ghost the story is all told from the ghost's point of view of the horrible murder um his spirit pass away into the west or whatever it is um into heaven and it's just the most beautiful little short story. And it's a, it's, and, and notice how it's, it's, it's sort of a, an attack on authority, but it's also, uh, upholding of authority, right? And that's the thing that you see sort of doubled, right? He's, yeah, he's got that, um, I'm a rich guy and I think I can tell these lesser people how to do their lives from the barrel of a gun. And I'm part of the establishment, but he's also really sensitive to the needs of the working man. But he's also aware that the working man is maybe not uh, also as educated as he. So he's got this kind of duality and a sensitivity that you don't see necessarily from everybody. Yeah, I, will, I think that can bring us back to the the Parliament of Earl, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so I mean. I, I wouldn't call the book a tragedy. Uh, uh, I wouldn't I call, I, I wouldn't say it has a happy or an unhappy ending. I think it's just sort of a misadventure, mm-hmm. but uh, the, uh, you know, the whole thing starts because the, the common people like get together and get ideas and like that. This is, you know, um, you know, we're talking about 1924. We've entered the era when like the masses are involved in politics now. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. This, women like, are this, voting. My God. 
Yeah, yeah. Women are voting. Um, you know, the czar has been overthrown. The, uh, you know, we so we have the masses involved in politics here. And it, you know, the result of that is like kind of folly, right? Like it doesn't have uh, happy consequences. And then ultimately the masses are not happy with like what they want. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, what's the, uh, the alternative to, you know, listening to what the people want is you get sort of complete more and more and more and more and more out of touch. And then guillotines come out and everybody, uh, the, yeah. one of my favorite, my, one of my favorite tweets is the, the patent for the mega guillotine. So it's like, <laughs> mega guillotine. Yeah, you got like 12 heads instead of. <laughs> One guy at a time. He's like just far more. It's industrial, right? So we can get this done. It makes guillotine twenty twenty is the usually what it is the tweet, right? And it's like yes, yes. Like you know what what people say. Bernie is my compromise candidate, right? And uh, like yeah, (laughs) because you know I've been saying for twenty years. Like how can you guys not like you know how can this continue as it is? I can't, I, we have it a lot easier and I'm dissatisfied up here, right? Um, how can it continue as it is? Well, th- you know, if Bernie doesn't win, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse and worse. The next guy's going to be worse until such time as, you know, the revolution comes and then there will be head chopping, right? That's just how it works. <laughs> if you look at history, you, you know, um, you can put, put it down and you can put it down for 50 years, but it, it comes back up. And, you know, that sensitivity you're talking about, I mean, the, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, we'll call them Anglo-Irish, uh, although, I, or British or whatever, like the, the British ruling class has always been better at uh, managing internal contradictions than like the neighboring ruling classes, Hence right? they're like, still having a monarchy, right? Yeah, like, like you can still be Lord Dunsany. Oh, I don't know if you can still be Lord Dunsany because that's now like no, no, in the Republic of Ireland. But Yeah, uh, no, they're still, they're still there. Yeah. They're still lording it up. Yeah, so I mean, like there's still a, you can still be a, you can still be a magic lord. That's right. <laughs> britain um and that's cause of that sensitivity yeah and and it's not like you know it's like it's same with churchill churchill is he's he's a mass of contradictions he's super racist he's got you know all this shit going he's not he's not actually the greatest writer of uh fiction i've read some of his stuff he's he's okay um but the thing is is he had this lust and enthusiasm for life Right. You see it in his paintings and his cigar smoking, his speeches, his uh, I mean, he went into every war. He, he didn't find a war he didn't like. Right. Um, and he, he lived that sort of terribly uh, outrageous life, but it wasn't incompetence. <laughs> right? It was semi-competence at some points and full competence at other points. And yet, yeah, he's, his legacy is not untainted by uh, the ruthlessness of, uh, I think a lot of it is of your time, right? Mm-hmm. And of your class. Uh, yeah, well, but the thing is, is it's of your time. Like, if you're, uh, if you're a revolutionary in modern France, you're wearing a yellow vest. But if you're a revolutionary 500 years or 400 years ago, um, it's guillotine time. Right. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. So, uh, but, uh, you know, I don't think there's like, for like men of Churchill and Dunsany's class, like, I don't think there's like an equivalent, like, 
uh, violence among the like British masses at the time, right? Um, you know, you have uh, these guys who are like going out to like Kenya and places like that, mm-hmm. and just machine gunning people, like, right? And it's you know, and the, and the staff of the British Empire is like mostly made up of like you Second know sons, like a small yeah. set of these dudes, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. not like everybody's involved in this. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, the you really respect the lust for life. Uh, it's kind of like. On some level, it's like uh, like a more compassionate version of it would be, uh, you know, a model for how maybe people should be, if you can say there's a way yeah. that people should be. Yeah, no, I, I, that's the thing, right? I, I like I like people, but they're kind of dangerous. Like, they, they have these hands. These hands can grab knives, right? Uh, there was a great tw- story. Of, <laughs> Paul, you probably, I don't know if you heard about this one. There was a crow in Vancouver that had a knife. <laughs> yes, I <laughs> heard that deep. story. <laughs> And uh, there was a follow-up story recently. It says, uh, Crow that had a knife, now reformed, has had, uh, he's now father. (laughs) Right? The fact that crows can be dangerous, um, makes me like crows more. I like bears, even though they could eat me and maul the fuck out of me. Right? And tigers. I I don't want to hang out with them, but I like that they exist. And I like beautiful. Yeah. No, it's, and that's why, you know, I'm saying veganism is probably, it's wrong because it is, it, it, but it's also right in that, you know, the whole idea is that the earth is not a great place naturally. It's just how it is. And then if, if you are mercifully killed suddenly by a tiger, that's great. But if you have a long lingering disease and there is no tiger to suddenly grab you, uh, then that's terrible. So killing is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, I don't like it when other fellow humans are coming at me. <laughs> it scares me. <laughs> so yeah, we, uh, flourishing that we see in a person like Dunsany and its intention with a fantasy world that he is presenting, right? The flourishing that we see in, I think, us being able to communicate across the continent, right? Different time zones. Uh, most of us never met in pub in person. That's a, a new kind of flourishing that was not available to the common man. Otherwise, you know, you'd have to be a Lord Dunsany to go visit all your friends in a- Athens and, and Africa. Yeah, you could write letters or send telegraphs, but unless you're Lord Dunsany, and even then the common people are generally not going to do that, but unless you're Lord Dunsany, yeah, you wouldn't have fr- you wouldn't. How, have would you, how would you meet this person? The only way is by correspondence, right? Yeah, you like read. Yeah, you read somebody's magazine and you wrote them a letter. That's uh, that's uh, that's how I met Scott. Mm-hmm. I read his column. True. Yeah, and I said, "There's a guy who, who knows where his towel is." Were you re- were you actually reviewing Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? It wasn't that early in science fiction audio. <laughs> it's possible, yeah, because <laughs> it was uh, there wasn't that much at the beginning, right? There was that, mm-hmm. and then there was. Uh, a couple of Star Trek two cassette audiobooks. Right, right. That's about it. And now it's every goddamn thing under the sun gets an audiobook. <laughs> <laughs> and rightly so. Yeah, very true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we yep. could, we could look at every single thing that came out in a month easily. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah. and you guys used very, to do that whole thing. And the very beginning, mm-hmm. it was like trying to dig through the whole internet, trying to find a hint that something was going to be turned into an audiobook. Now, uh, it's a tidal wave, endlessly flooding, <laughs> torrenting towards us, and uh, yeah. all you can do is hope not to drown at the very <laughs> top by grabbing onto some 
random 1924 novel yeah. <laughs> that showed up on LibriVox. Well, yeah, with the wall of magic to come wa- swapping over us right? because because we wanted a magic lord. <laughs> Big That's mistake. Right. What, what do you guys make of the uh, the killing of the um, unicorn here? It's not just a symbol for, and not just a fact that you know the the Pope had a uh, unicorn horn at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably a narwhal horn, right? In real life, yeah, right? Almost certainly. But uh, is that the death of innocence? Because it doesn't feel like that exactly. In, uh, no, in it feels very innocent. It, it, it's 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 killing the killing school. Uh, no, but the uh, I mean. There's this line from, uh, I forget which part of the Book of the New Sun it is. Um, I think it's like um, uh, Shadow of the Torturer, where mm-hmm. uh, uh, the guy is like talking about, hey, you know, there's this weird thing where like uh, you like want to destroy everything you're obsessed with. Mm. Um, and it's like, you know, hunters are like obsessed with uh, the things they prey on. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, Lord Dunsany is like obsessed with animals because he kills animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, uh, the, the role of hounds and dogs. Right. He's he's sympathizing with all the things that he's hunting, that he hunts with dogs. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, but I don't know. I mean, it feels like, uh, that was like part of his vigorous spirit was this, uh, desire to kill. Um, Oh dude, it's a, it's a real thing. I, I I mean, in PUBG, which is a, you know, it's a murder simulator and essentially, right. I, I try not to kill people, uh, because it just gives away my position and makes me more likely to be killed. But the temptation is very strong, right? And I, I do kill people. And I mean, it's a fake game, right? It's, nobody's actually dying. But it feels like the fear of, you know, when you've been in it for 20 minutes and half an hour and you're, you're staring at the world and hearing every sound, it is a kind of uh, flight or flight thing that gets your heart really beating and you feel like, oh, my God, this could this could be the end. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And you know it's all simulated, but the there are people who, when they play, they that's all they think of is the killing, not even the winning, right? They're like, let's get some kills, not like let's and and that. So it's it's a hundred percent real, right? That vigor, that chase, that victory. Because yeah. it's it's built into your cells, yo. Your cells want to live, and the way you do that is by putting food into it. Yeah, no, I, I feel that. I mean, there is something very, like, foreign to me about it. It's just sort of like, he's out there, he sees, like, the most beautiful thing that he's, like, seen in his, like, life, and is like, I'm, like, like now going to kill it in a sportsman-like fashion. You're talking Orion, or you're talking um, uh, Dunsany, or the same guy? <laughs> um, I, yeah, I don't know if there's a difference, right? right, right. Like, Yeah, uh, he's the great hunter. Yeah, he's like the great white hunter. So right. he's like doing that. Um uh, and I don't totally understand that. I think it's like something that's like cultivated. Um but yeah, so you yeah. can you can deny it, right? And yeah. but it can be cultivated, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean I, I live in I live in Utah, grew up in Idaho, and hunters everywhere, right? But my family was from the East Coast, so I wasn't raised that way. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not something that they did. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I agree with Will. It's something that I don't understand. You know, I, I can't, I don't understand someone flying to Africa to kill a lion. You know, because you that, love lions. Because what I would like to do is see the lion. <laughs> I would like to photograph. I would be I like very that. interested in taking a picture of that lion. That's what I would be interested. <laughs> well, in. yeah, but that, see, yeah. that's a trans. You're, what you're doing is transforming a desire to uh-huh. kill, right, into a desire to to capture. Like that's the why they're called right. shots, right? Right. That's why, yes. That's why I mean, Paul's called. Paul does the same thing. You can collect butterflies, right? Uh, or you, which is killing them. Um, and it's kind of the same thing. The trophy hunting. I mean, this is, this is undeniable. It is something, you know, in every human civilization, the, the hunter. Mm. And yet it doesn't make a lot of sense if you live in the city and, uh, there's a, a scarcity of game, right? But also, you know, going to a game farm or shooting from, uh, uh, truck or whatever, you know, we, we, we say, oh, that's impure, right? Or, or whatever. So you see that tension in a show like Joe Rogan always talks about how he hunts, right? Um, and he, most of the meat he eats is from something he, that he's hunted, but it's not something that he thinks everybody can do. And I'm like, yeah, exactly right. So there is this, we're full of contradictions and, and weirdnesses, right? That you can be a, uh, both an oppressor and uh, an uplifter. <laughs> so weird. But but I want I want to go back to the unicorn for a second because we have the whole we have the whole uh, through line of Orion going for the unicorns, and then we have the weird bit where the will o' wisps talk about unicorns at, in Dude, chapter twenty. Will o' wisps are so interesting because they are they're a people, right? And uh, they're 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 they're, they're, they're a sentient species, and they. Don't like unicorns, and they consider unicorns proud. And it's like, uh, it's like, no, said an elder of the Will O' Wisps. None loves the proud unicorns. It's, it's like, it's like, it's like they, they, the unicorn. It's like we have a unicorn Will O' Wisp war going on in <laughs> Elfland, which is very, very weird. And that's all we get out of that entire exchange. Is like it doesn't fit with. Orion hunting that single unicorn. It's like, what is this war going on? I want to know more about this weird conflict that's apparently been brewing in Elfland for who knows how long. And now they can have trolls and humans try to help against the unicorns. Venerable traveler, said the elder Will-O-Wisp. But at those words, the traveler flung up up his hat and leaped from his long black coat and stood before the Will-O-Wisp stark naked. And the people of the marshes saw that it was a troll that had tricked them. Um, the trolls are also humans, right? All, <laughs> the Will-O-Wisps, um, they capture people as well, right? But is that only since, since, um, since, uh, we killed all the unicorns or were they always doing that? Will-O-Wisps are tricksters, right? Uh-huh. And so Lurulu, uh, Lurulu, uh, tricks the Will-O-Wisps. It's a, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. He, he's taking so many, right, real, uh, I don't know, fairy tale creatures and making it into a uni- unified thing and into a big story. Um, and it doesn't feel like it's, uh, as groundbreaking as it is because I think it's just so early and everybody else is being influenced by it. And, and, and that, that the trolls are humans thing, that reminds me of a role playing game, a, small 
press role playing game that I played some years ago with my local group called The Shadow of Yesterday, which is set in a fantasy world that has humans, elves, goblins, ratkin, and one of the things ratkin. is ratkin, you know, yep. rat people. And it. one of the, if you're not playing human, one of the things is you can go too far and basically lose your speciesness and become human, which is a really interesting idea that if you if you progress around a, a certain path that you can basically give up what makes you distinct from humans and basically return to humanity, which is a re- was a really interesting mechanic. And you just talking about trolls and humans, you may think of like, are the trolls humans? And that also makes me think of, um, speaking of it, it returns to the animated Return of the King, which, which inserted that weird bit about the hobbits getting bigger and looks and they're becoming human, which is not in the Tolkien novels at all, but it's mm-hmm. in that in that movie that that whole kind of loss of magic, loss of uh, fairiness, and becoming mundane humanity. I, I only have one question for you, Paul. If I play this game, can I become a beaglekin? Um, I, I I would I would basically yes. I would I would I would hack it so that you could play a beaglekin because right, I I do love sniffing at gates and and. Bases of trees. And uh, I mean, jumping over yeah, the, the trolls do speak the hu- trolls and humans do speak the same language in this book, right? Like, that's, yeah, yeah, that's like a line that like he slips that in there. He doesn't explore it. He's just like, oh yeah, the trolls talk the same language as humans do. No, I, I yeah, just I, like I yeah, really enjoyed the troll. <laughs> uh, no, I, this is uh, I, I enjoyed this book, but it uh, if you guys have not read any Lord Dunsany other than this. You are just touching this sort of the least interesting thing I've ever read of his. Wow. It's, it, he's got, he's got poems that are like just haunting. And they're, I bet he dashed them off in 10 seconds. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio. When they found some drawer liners in Douglas Adams' apartment that they need to keep <laughs> squeezing the drops out of. It's kind of it, it, but, 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 it, but it is, unfortunately, with... It is a thing that he kept reinventing and creep remixing throughout his life. And mm. I I appreciate that in a sense because it was, it's like a palimpsest. You're like you'd write over all this stuff and you could kind of see where all old things were and below the new that he was doing. And it, it's a fascinating evolution of how he changed and refined and altered his concepts throughout his career. It's not I can't think of a lot anybody else has actually done something quite like that. I mean, we've seen director couple cuts of books and things, but not to just to reinvent the same, the same verse and the same story over and over again and, and come up with new truths and new things every time. Yeah. I think Walt Whitman did that, but he like did that cause he was like really unsuccessful. <laughs> That's a different, that's a different reason. <laughs> mm-hmm. I I, I don't I haven't read enough Walt Whitman to say, but uh, it sounds like Paul really really dug Hitchhiker's uh, Guide. I went back and looked at it um, again, and it's it, it, it's um, it's Jesse got some has, issues. So. Jesse, have ha, Jesse, have you seen my Twitter bio? What's the last <laughs> word, dude? It's always changing. How can I tell? <laughs>
<laughs> when when did you change it last? I mean, Will just locked his account. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't actually do that. that I know. I know. <laughs> but the last words of my Twitter bio, bio are always, I'm just this, this guy you know. So, this this guy you know, yeah. So, uh, well, you're just so, comparing yourself to the president of the galaxy, Paul. <laughs> I know. It's a little arrogant of me. Out of character. <laughs> Two-headed president of the galaxy. Um. Who's probably more cop? Oh, let's not talk politics. Let's just move on. I'm going to avoid. I'm going to avoid that trap. It's funny. I I, I see. I see uh, a lot of politics talk, and and people still who are on my account, you know, are following me. And like, there's a lot of people we just don't talk politics on 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 Twitter. But I'm like shaking my head, and they got to be shaking their head when. They're reading my my tweets <laughs> or my retweets. I guess it would would be what it is, but yeah, it's pretty funny. All mm. right, uh, so I don't think we're gonna get Jason. He's he hasn't responded here. Um, I suggested uh, since it didn't look like he was prepped um, that uh, he come tomorrow and I just do a regular talk to. But I don't know if that's gonna happen. So we'll just we'll get started because I have a class in an hour and forty five minutes. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, I got a, a recorder going. Would you do the same, Paul? Absolutely. Make me get it started. I can't remember if uh, Scott has a recorder. Yeah, yeah. it's on. Oh, excellent. On. Yeah. All right. Um, anything else uh, new and businessy? Uh, hmm. I think we just launch into it. All right. Uh, let me get that Wikipedia entry out. Uh, so I have a fact in front of me, like the name of the book. Uh, nope, that's not it. That's Mary Shelley. Okay, we'll solve her. I always uh, <laughs> doubt myself when I spell her name. I always think it's S-H-E-L-L-E-Y. And then I thought, maybe it's just S-H-E-L-L-Y. And, like, sometimes people get fancy. Like, they think, I'm going to make it special. So, like, Edgar Allan Poe, they put an E in there for some fucking reason. In the middle of his name. <laughs> A-L-L-E-N. It's like, that's just wrong. You're just wrong. Don't get mm-hmm. fancy. Um, what happened to that? Oh, Edward Plunkett. There he is. Except that wasn't what I wanted. I wanted his... There. King of Elfland's daughter. Wikipedia entry. Got it. Ah, Here I go. Ready? Ready. Okay, so... That's going to be all me, Will? That sounds right. But don't forget me. (laughs) Well... You. Well, yeah, yeah, you're always going to be number one, Jesse. That's true. I, mean, there hasn't been an I should put that in my bio, all. Paul. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Always number going one, to be number always one. Always going to be number one. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Make Jesse great again. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> here we go. 